morning. So if you have your Bibles, open it to the book of Hebrews. But I would like to start this morning with a particular verse from Revelation. Reggie, if if we could have this verse up on the screen, please. From Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, verse 17 and 18. Listen to this uh, from the words of Jesus himself. He said, Do not be afraid. These are the words of Jesus. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive again forever and ever. And behold, I hold the keys of death and Hades. Now, let's take this verse and put it in the backdrop behind your greatest fear. What is your greatest fear? Imagine that for a second. Do you have it? Now, let's listen to the words of Jesus again. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Now, still with this promise Uh, from the words of the risen Savior, Christ himself, in the backdrop. Now let's look at that against whatever your greatest struggle is right now. What is your greatest struggle? What is your point of of confusion? What is your point of chaos right now? What, What is your struggle? And now let's listen to the words of Jesus again. Do not be afraid. I am the first and last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. And now still, with this promise in the background, in the backdrop, let's hear it against the backdrop of your greatest failures. Jesus says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. This morning, we are entering into Hebrews chapter 3, and we are talking about Jesus is greater than. Jesus is greater than what? Jesus is greater than whatever it is that you're facing. And if you are in the midst of some storm where tumultuous waves are rocking your life, remember how Jesus can stand in the midst of storms and simply say, peace be still. And as we walk through Hebrews chapter 3 this morning, may we hear him whisper to our hearts, I am greater than whatever it is that you are going through. If this morning you came in here shackled by, by the, the, the chains from some demonic sin that just has a hold of you, may we remember Jesus walking through the cemetery and seeing the man that, that had a legion of demons within him and simply saying, come out and be clean. And may we hear Jesus whisper to our heart, I am greater than whatever chains have shackled you. And this morning, if, if you have a loved one, perhaps, that has recently slipped into eternity, their, the essence of their life, their spirit has, has departed their body and left this body, this earth suit behind. May you hear the words of Jesus in John chapter 11. I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And may we hear him whisper to our hearts, I am greater than death. He is greater than sin, he's greater than our fears, he's greater than our failures, he's greater than death, he's greater than anything that could bind us, and may we realize Jesus Christ this morning as our God who's greater than. Before we go any further, let's pray. Father, we pray in Jesus' name.
that you would open up our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would do what only your Spirit can do, and that is empower us to magnify the name of Jesus Christ. You are too lofty, you are too great, our words fail us, our imaginations fail us, but that's what your Spirit does. Empower us to praise you and exalt you and magnify you and lift your name so that all will be drawn to you. And when we're drawn to you, we'll know peace and we'll know freedom. So empower us, Holy Spirit, to do what only you can do, and that is to magnify the name of Christ, to pull back the veil of religious confusion so that we can see Jesus and the gospel. Lord, we rely on your Holy Spirit to, to illuminate your scriptures so that it takes root in our heart and produces an explosion of faith, hope, and love, and passion for life. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter 3. So we are talking about Jesus is greater than. And just a quick review. In Hebrews chapter 1, in a summary, we looked at the supremacy of Christ. And we saw that Jesus is greater than the angels. In fact, Jesus is the very word of God. The very word of God that was present in creation. And God said, let there be light. And the very word of God that became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus. We saw that Jesus is the very Word of God. But not only that, we saw that Jesus is the Son of God. But not only that, we saw that Jesus is God the Son. We believe in the deity of Christ. He is God. God is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, three in one, one in three. And Jesus is the Word of God. Jesus is God the Son. And Jesus is the Son of God. And... Then, last week in Hebrews chapter 2, we saw that not only is Jesus high and lifted up and the exalted one who was superior than the angels, but we saw that Jesus became man. And just as our words fell us and as our imagination escapes us, to paint a picture lofty enough to adequately praise Jesus for his supremacy, we see that it's even a loftier task to paint a picture of Christ's incarnation as God became man and willingly made himself for a time lower than the angels as he dwelt among us. He didn't even choose a nice house. He didn't even choose an affluent family. He didn't even choose a reputable career. He was a humble carpenter whose public ministry lasted only three years. At the time of his death, his followers, uh, they, they, they scattered, and he, the only article of possession to his name was a robe and they gambled it and ca gambled for it and cast lots for it and he was laid to rest in a borrowed tomb a pauper's tomb and yet that three-year ministry has lasted 2,000 years split time in half bc ad and changed the world and today there's not one second across the globe are millions of people not studying his words and worshiping him and following him. He never raised up an army, and yet today millions are willing to give their life for him. We looked at the supremacy of Christ in Hebrews 1. We looked at the humility of Christ through his incarnation in Hebrews chapter 2. When he came to this earth for the purpose of spreading out his arms and dying on the cross for us. And in Hebrews chapter 3, we are going to look at the reality that Jesus is greater than anything that you could ever face. So, Hebrews chapter 3. The first characteristic that we see about Jesus is this. Jesus is our apostle. You guys say that word, apostle. 
Jesus is our apostle. Let's look at this in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Think about this. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. There are so many things we can fix our thoughts upon, aren't there? I mean, we can fix our thoughts upon uh, the, the election mudslinging back and forth. That will encourage us, won't it? That is edifying, isn't it? I'm being sarcastic. Or we can, we can fix our thoughts upon the things of this world, the ambitions at work, the co-workers. Uh, we can fix our thoughts upon where we've been. We can fix our thoughts upon the unknown of tomorrow. But scriptures instruct us to cast those thoughts down and instead fix our thoughts on Jesus. And we have to intentionally cast these thoughts down and fix our thoughts upon Jesus. Anytime you ever see somebody that is, you know, they're in perfect shape, it's because they intentionally decided to cast down, uh, you know, junk food. They intentionally decided to cast down time in front of the TV. They intentionally decided to get on their bike and ride, or they intentionally decided to, to go to the health club and exercise. It was discipline. They were intentional about it. And anytime you see somebody that is anointed by the Spirit of God, that has joy in their heart, that is overflowing, somebody who has the love of Christ just shining through them, they were intentional about casting down thoughts of where they've been, of what's been said about them, or what's been done to them, or the fears of tomorrow, or the, 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 the troubles of the world. They were intentional about casting those thoughts down, and they were intentional all day, every day, about fixing their thoughts upon Jesus. And when we fix our thoughts upon Jesus, the author of Hebrews gives us two specific characteristics of Jesus to, to rest our thoughts upon, to land our thoughts upon. Here they are. Let's fix our eyes upon Jesus, who we acknowledge as our, and here are the two characteristics. And these are the first two points. We fix our eyes upon Jesus, who we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. As our apostle and high priest. And what's the difference between an apostle and a high priest? The difference is simply the direction of the communication. Uh, as an apostle, the direction of the communication is God speaking through somebody to mankind. It's the direction of God speaking through somebody to mankind. That's an apostle. As a high priest, it is man speaking through somebody to God. You see the difference of the communication? An apostle is speak, God speaking through a man to somebody, and a high priest is mankind speaking through somebody to God. The word apostle simply means it's a messenger, an envoy, a delegate, one commissioned by another to represent him in some way. Nations have apostles. We call them ambassadors today. It's a representative. It's somebody is commissioned to speak on behalf of somebody else. And Jesus Christ is the great apostle. Uh, there are capital A apostles, as Peter, James, John, the apostle Paul, but then there is the great apostle, Jesus Christ. And he was speaking to mankind on behalf of God the Father. Now, can you imagine if somebody came to you with a word specifically from God and said, I have a word from you today? I mean, somebody who knows all of your secrets, 
everywhere you've been, everything that you've done, and they said, I have a word from God for you today. Are you going to be nervous by this? Uh, well, this was what happened. In the past, we read in Hebrews chapter 1, God spoke by prophets and messengers. But in these last days, God spoke to us, it says in Hebrews chapter 1, by His Son, Jesus Christ. And He had a word from God the Father for you. I remember, how many of you guys have been watching the debates? A few of you? All right. It's entertaining, isn't it? Um, a handful of years ago, there were some debates. It was kind of a famous debate. It was a vice presidential debate between, I believe, Senator Lloyd Benson and uh, Dan Quell. And if you remember Dan Quell, they were giving him a hard time because they thought that maybe he was maybe too young or too inexperienced. And so he began comparing himself to John F. Kennedy who was the youngest elected president. Teddy Roosevelt was the youngest president. Uh, his president died the first year in office. He became president at 42. Kennedy was elected at 43. Dan Quell was young, and they thought inexperienced. And so Dan Quell was comparing himself to John F. Kennedy. And he was saying uh, the, 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 the comparisons and the similarities in their ages. And then in this debate, uh, Senator Benson, man, he saw an opening, and he took the shot, and he said to Dan Quell, he said, sir, I have... I knew John Kennedy, I worked with John Kennedy, and you are no John F. Kennedy. I don't know if you remember that, but that was a real, that was kind of a highlight of the debate. Well, in the same way, people, uh, they wouldn't dare compare themselves in Jesus' day to somebody as great as Abraham, or as great, even greater than Abraham, as Moses. I mean, if they could, they would, but, but nobody would even dare go there. And the Pharisees approached Jesus, and they really tried to one-up Jesus, like, like Senator Benson did to Dan Quell, sir, you are no John F. Kennedy. And they approached Jesus and basically said, Jesus, you are no Abraham. Don't even go there. You are no Abraham. And they asked him, they said, are you greater than our father Abraham? Now, let's go back to that Quell-Benson debate. Dan Quell, he was just speechless, right? He just had to take it. He left himself open, and he got hit, and he just had to take it. But can you imagine how utterly insane he would have seemed if he said, well, actually, I know that I am no John F. Kennedy. In fact, I am greater than John F. Kennedy. In fact, there was a God that John F. Kennedy prayed to, and that's me. That's exactly what Jesus said. They said, sir, you are no Abraham. And he said, you know, before Abraham was, I am. And I am was the name that God gave to Moses. I am. It means I always have been, I always will be. I am present. I am. And it was a name that was so holy, mind you, that the Hebrews would never even dare enunciate It's in the holy name of God. We won't even enunciate the name I am. And Jesus not only said, before Abraham was, I am. He took those two words, I am, and he used them over and over and over in the Gospel of John. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the true vine. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives life to the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man, nobody comes to the Father except by me. 
He is the great I am. And this was the word that God spoke to us through Jesus Christ, the great apostle. He said, I am. And incidentally, Jesus is the only one who can make a complete sentence out of those two words, I am. We look at the candidates today, and they say, I am. And we say, you are what? And we say, well, I am a politician. And we say, yes, you are. And we could fill in a lot of other blanks as well. But when Jesus says, I am, we say, you are what? And he says, I am anything and everything that you need. I am the life, I am the door, I am the way, the truth, the life, I am the resurrection, I am, I am, I am the bread of life, I am the living water. And so before we go into the next section of Jesus being our great high priest, let me ask you this, are you utterly relying on I am in your life today? The, the theme throughout Hebrews chapter 3 is the, the supremacy of Christ over Moses and the Old Testament law and all of these things that, that these Hebrews were tempted to slip back into. But in our context today, Jesus is greater than our past. He's greater than anything that this world has to offer. He's greater than anything that we may want to trust in more than Christ. What are you tempted to trust in more than Christ? Let me ask you, are you relying on I am? When God told Moses, my name is I am, Louis Giglio writes, in a moment, in a moment, Moses knew God's name, but so much more, he knew his. God was telling Moses, I am the center of everything. I am running the show. I am the same every day and forever. I am the owner of everything. I am the Lord. I am the creator and sustainer. I am the savior. I am your source. I am more than enough. I am inexhaustible and immeasurable. I am who I am. I am God. In a heartbeat, Giglio writes, Moses knew God's name and something more. He finally knew his. For if God's name is I am, Moses' name must be I am not. I am not the center of everything. I am not in control. I am not the source. I am not the solution. I am not all-powerful. I am not calling the shots. I am not the owner of anything. I am not the Lord. I am not. And that's my name, too. And yours. Just try saying it under your breath. I am not. I am not running anything. I am not head of anything. I am not in charge of anything. I am not the maker. I am not the savior. I am not holding it all together. I am not all-knowing. I am not God. I am not. But I know I am. And I can rest and I am. Jesus is our apostle. God's word to us. And what is God's word to us? I am. You are not. But I am, and I love you more than you could ever imagine. And if you trust me, I'll carry you. Jesus is our apostle. And we also read that Jesus is our high priest. And this is awesome, isn't it? If you remember, an apostle is the direction of, of communication, God speaking through an apostle to man. A high priest is the opposite, mankind speaking through a high priest to God. Have you ever walked up to somebody and said, could you pray for me? In essence, you're asking them to perform a priestly responsibility on your behalf. And so they say, sure, how can I pray? And you tell them your burdens, and they begin praying for you. And they are speaking to God on your behalf. 
And it's a beautiful thing when we, when we function in that priestly role on behalf of one another, and we function in that priestly role on behalf of our, our lost friends and our struggling friends. And we, we, we storm the throne room of heaven on behalf of somebody with a heart of compassion. That's a priestly responsibility. But did you know that you don't have to ask me to pray for you or anybody else? There's, there's encouragement and there's comfort and there's unity and there's strength in that. But any one of us can pray to God directly because we have a great high priest. And that high priest's name is Jesus Christ. A little snapshot into next week in chapter 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, his name is Jesus, who ascended into heaven, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we, prode- we profess. Watch this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Thus the name of the series, Be Bold in Hebrews. Or another translation, let us approach the throne room of grace boldly so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. There's four characteristics about our great high priest from this passage. One, we see that our great high priest has all authority. Chapter 4, verse 14, we read that he ascended into heaven. Jesus Christ, after the death, burial, and resurrection, he ascended into heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are three in one. Uh, There's times that Stephen, the first martyr in the Old Testament, saw the Son of Man at the right hand of the Father. There are other times that people had a vision of heaven, and there was one. When we are in heaven, will we see three or one? I believe we'll see one, and the one will have nail scars on his hands and feet. And incidentally, there is only one man-made thing in heaven. Did you know that? Not the streets of gold, God made that. Not the throne, God made that. Not the spirits who are there, the angels, the redeemed saints, the church. God made all of that. There's only one thing in heaven that is man-made. That's the nail scars in the hands and the feet of Christ. It's the only man-made thing in heaven. When Jesus conquered death and he rose from the grave, he had a glorified, resurrected body. But he chose to keep the nail scars. So that we could remember throughout all of eternity why we're there and we could worship the Lamb who was slain. And Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. That means that He has all authority. And when we pray, we are praying to a God with all authority. I mean, you may have a grandmother who loves you so much and she'll do anything for you. But if you need help, perhaps, you know, making your mortgage payment and your car payment and you need a job, she may love you, but she may not be able to help you. Or if you have a body that's been ravaged by disease, she may love you, but she won't be able to help you. And then there's somebody like Bill Gates. Now, he might be able to help you, but he doesn't love you. He doesn't even know your name. But then there's our Savior, Jesus Christ, the great high priest. He knows your name. He loves you, and he has the power to do something about it. He has all authority. And this presents a problem for some people, because they look around at the world today, and they see the Christians that are being beheaded, and they see the, 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 you know, the, the little girls who are abducted, and they see the, the atrocities, and they see 
you know, the corruption in our government and the slander going back and forth and the chaos and the immorality in our world today. And they say, if God is so powerful, why doesn't he do something about all the suffering? And they conclude, well, then he must not be all loving. I mean, if he's all powerful, why doesn't he do something? Then they conclude he must not be all loving. Otherwise, he would, he would move into action. And some say, well, perhaps God is all loving, but he's just not at all powerful, and he can't do something about it. I mean, he's, he's loving, but he's not at all powerful. And some say, well, maybe there's no God at all. Maybe he's not all powerful. Maybe he's not all loving. But we see that Jesus is all loving. We look at the cross, and we see that he is all powerful. Look at the empty tomb, and he's filled with complete authority. And our answer to them is just wait. Wait upon the Lord. He's all loving. He has the nail scars to prove it. Just wait upon him. He's returning. He's coming again. The first time Jesus came, he was born in a manger. The second time Jesus comes, he's going to be riding a stallion. The first time Jesus came, he was wearing a crown of thorns. The second time he comes, he's going to be wearing a crown of gold. The first time he came, he was covered in his own blood to redeem us of our sins. The second time he comes, we read in the prophecies of Isaiah and Revelation, he's going to be covered in the blood of the nations when he brings justice to the world. Just wait. He's all loving and he's all powerful. And we see the second characteristic of our great high priest, and this is that our high priest empathizes with our weaknesses. Is this not incredible? He empathizes with our weaknesses. And don't we see, we've seen just the opposite of this, like in the, if you've been following the campaigns, somebody has a little or a big a window of weakness that's been exposed. And man, doesn't everybody get on their high horse and on the opposing sides and they capitalize on it. And, and I mean, they all are acting and talking, talking as if they're live lives like Mother Teresa. And they just look for little windows of opportunities in the other and they pounce on one another. Jesus is just the opposite. I mean, that incidentally is so satanic, and that's our world, isn't it? Every time Satan sees a weakness, the accuser, the condemner of the brethren, he sees a weakness, he kicks, and he stomps, and he accuses, he condemns, which is so cruel. Jesus is just the opposite. He sees our weakness. The one who could condemn, the one who could accuse, doesn't. He empathizes with our weaknesses. Isn't that beautiful? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. This is one of the reasons that the gospel is is as the gospel is. It's the plan that God chose. He chose to become man and to experience everything that we've gone through. Just think of a temptation. Any temptation that you faced in your life, think of a temptation. I don't care what it is. Imagine some horrific temptation. The Bible says Jesus was tempted in every way as we are. Every way. Multiply it many, 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 many times. Jesus was tempted in every way, yet without sin. And so he empathizes. And we have a weakness. And he says, yeah, I get it. I get it. And his heart doesn't condemn us. His heart doesn't accuse us. His heart breaks for us. Why? Because, again, the, the man-made things in heaven right now, the, the, the nail scars and Jesus' hands and feet paid the price for our sins. And all accusation, all 
condemnation was finalized when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. He paid for our sins. There's no more condemnation. There's no more accusation. There's only empathy. There's only compassion as we are now still in this battle. We're still in the fight. It's been won, but we are still battling and we're still living out our faith and he is cheering us on and he gets it. And that, inv- and that brings us to the next characteristic of our great high priest. Our great high priest, therefore, invites us to boldly pray. And I think that word is awesome. It, it, says, it says, therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence, boldly. With confidence, boldly. You know, many of us have a perception when we pray that we are, are like this this. You know this pauper. You know we're in, we're in rags. Like like we haven't changed our clothes in months, and we haven't showered in months. We smell like the streets. And when we pray, sometimes this is how we see ourselves. And can you imagine being dressed like that and smelling like that, and you haven't shaved in, in months and looking like that and. Then going, like say there's a, there's a very uh, elite banquet in downtown Fort Worth and everybody's in nice tuxedos and suits and glistening dresses and going to that. Can you imagine the, the looks and the stares and the, and the snubs that we would get? Can you imagine that? How people would avoid us? And sometimes when we pray, that's how we feel. We're, we feel. We feel like we are dressed in spiritual rags. And we think that prayer is the process of grabbing the heels of God and begging Him to release some blessing from His clenched fists. And finally, if we beg enough and if we pray enough, then God will finally say, here. And He throws us the blessings, and as He does, He flashes some glaring, condemning glance at us. That is not prayer at all. Prayer is just the opposite. When we pray, we are not dressed in those clothes. Spiritually speaking, that is not how we look. The Bible tells us that when we trusted Christ as our Lord and Savior, our sins were forgiven. Not only that, but we became the very righteousness of God. And the prophet Isaiah prophesies about what that is. And we are clothed in the salvation garments these, it's like bridal garments, but it's salvation garments, and we are holy, and we're pure, and we're no longer enemies of God. We're in the family. That means that we are spiritual royalty. We are prince and princesses. And so when we pray, the Bible says, boldly enter the throne room of God. That means that when we pray, like a royal prince or like a royal princess, we boldly enter the throne room of God with our prayers, throwing the doors wide open, and we walk boldly to the throne room of our Father in heaven, and our royal clothes of salvation and righteousness are flowing behind us, and the countenance of our Father in heaven, it illuminates as a bride, when he, as, as a groom when he looks at his bride, or as a grandfather when he sees his child burst into a room. And God the Father, he steps off of his throne, and we approach him with a strong relationship, with a healthy relationship, not because of anything we've done or haven't done, but because of everything that Jesus did for us on the cross. And the Father is not going to waste the blood of Jesus. And he says to us, what can I do for you, my child? The Bible says, boldly make your request known. And then we read, 
so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And this means that our high priest is moved, and he moves heaven and earth in response to our prayers. So, back to the original question when we started this section on the high priest. If God is so loving, then why so much suffering? Well, he must not be all-powerful, some would conclude. Or if God is all-powerful, why so much suffering? Well, he must not be all-loving, God would conclude. But we know that God is all-powerful. He spoke the universe into existence. We know that God is all-loving. Look at the nail scars on his hands and feet. But God's love and God's power is manifest through the prayers of his people. And if we want to see things changed on this earth, then we have to move things in the heavenlies. And the way we move things in the heavenlies is through prayer. And God, in turn, moves things in heaven and earth. Don't think that our prayers move mountains. Our prayers move the heart and the power of God, which in turn moves mountains. And when we do pray, we're not finally getting God to do something to do that he never thought of doing anyway. When we pray with boldness, we are aligning with God's heart. Something that he wants to do so badly in this world, and his first step in doing it in this world is by placing it on your heart as a burden, as a need, as a desperation. And then when you, by faith, are moved to pray to your great high priest, God in turn moves mountains. This is how God works through the prayers of his people. Jesus is our apostle. Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is our salvation. We see in, yeah, we can always praise Jesus for that. Put your hands together. We see that Moses and Jesus are similar. I mean, that would have been quite a compliment if Senator Benson said to Quell, you know what you are like? You are like John F. Kennedy. Or can you imagine? You know what? You are like Thomas Jefferson. Or you are like George Washington. What a compliment, right? Well, in the same way, Jesus is like Moses. Moses is like Jesus. We read in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 2, as we continue, Jesus was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. You see, there's similarities. Jesus is like Moses. Moses is like Jesus. Moses was faithful in all of God's house. Jesus was faithful in all of his father's house. There are many similarities. Moses fasted 40 days. Jesus fasted 40 days. Um, Moses led Israel out of Egypt when Jesus was a child. He came out of Egypt. Moses led Israel out of Egypt through the blood of a lamb that was sprinkled over a door. Jesus leads us out of sin and death by his own blood. Um, There are many similarities. Moses ascended a mountain and communed with God and his face shone. Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration ascended a mountain and his face shone. And there's great similarities. So what a compliment, Senator Benson to Quell. You are like JFK. And Jesus, wow, there are many similarities. You are like Moses. But even more, and a great, a great theme throughout chapter 3 is Jesus is infinitely 
infinitely, infinitely greater than Moses as we continue. And in this next section, the author of Hebrews gives us two uh, word pictures. There is a, a building and there is a family. And the first word picture, he says that the builder, which is Jesus Christ, is greater than the building, which was represents uh, Moses and the children of Israel. And then the son is faithful over his father's house, and the servant is faithful over his master's house. And in the same way, Jesus Christ is greater than the servant. The son is greater than the servant, as Jesus is greater than Moses. The builder is greater than the building, as Jesus is greater than Moses. And then we read in John chapter 1, verse 17, that through Moses... And this is the greatest in one verse, both similarity and contrast, showing Christ's superiority over Moses. Again, this is the greatest similarity between Jesus and Moses, also contrasting Christ's superiority over Moses. In John chapter 1, verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. That's the first covenant. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's the second covenant. So Moses brought the law, the first covenant. Jesus brought grace and truth, the second covenant. Moses brought the law and the first covenant and the Passover lamb. Jesus brought grace and truth and the second covenant, and he himself as the Passover lamb. And when I say law, what do we mean by that in the Old Testament? You know, sometimes people will try to ridicule the Bible and they'll, they'll say, how can God's word be applicable? Because look at all the various laws. How in the world could any of those things be applicable today? And the answer to that is, which laws are you talking about? Because all of the Old Testament laws can be summarized in one of three categories, the civil, the ceremonial, or the moral law. For example, the civil law, the civil, the societal, the city laws. Today in Fort Worth, Texas, we have 55-mile-an-hour speed limits, 75-mile-an-hour speed limits on the highway. We have 20-mile-an-hour 20 20 speed limits in school zones and, and so forth and so on. We have civil laws that aren't going to be applicable to a society 100 years from now or even 2,000 years from now or 5,000 years from now. In the same way in the Old Testament, there were civil laws. If you have an oxen and it tramples over your fence and it tramples over your neighbor's fence and his oxen escaped and you have to, replay, re, you know, you have to replace that oxen oxen that he lost, and you know, how many ever more oxen, and you read these laws in the Old Testament like that, does that apply today? Of course not. Those are civil laws, and we're in a different society. And then there's the ceremonial laws, and those are really fascinating. The ceremonial laws are like when a priest goes into the Holy of Holies, he has to wear a certain kind of garment, and the garments cannot be interwoven with different kind of fabrics, and when he goes in there, he has to go on this day and at this time, and he has to do these rituals, and he, have to have, he has to have this lamb, and he has to sacrifice that lamb, and he has to go in there, and he has to do this ritual, and those all point to Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection for us on the cross. They're all type of, they're all foreshadowing, they're all shadows of the reality, the Bible says, Jesus. Those ceremonial laws, again, they're the shadow of the reality. They're foreshadowings of Jesus Christ. So then, that means today we don't have to go into the holy place of the Holy of Holies because when Jesus died, the veil separating the Holy and the Holy of Holies was ripped in half from the top and bottom, meaning all the ceremonial laws have been fulfilled in Christ. 
And then there's the moral laws. Thus the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not take the Lord's God name in vain. Uh, thou shalt not have any other gods above the Lord thy God, and so forth and so on. Are those laws applicable today? Yes. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew, don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In fact, I tell you the truth, not the slightest dot of an eye or crossing of a T, jot or tittle, will by any means disappear until everything is accomplished. And Jesus took the moral law and he took it up to the nth degree. And he said, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, whoever looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery in her heart. You've heard that it was said, do not murder. I tell you, if you're even angry with the person in your heart without cause, you've committed murder in your heart. And that's the true essence of the moral law. Jesus just pulled back the veil and helped us see the moral law more clearly. It is absolute perfection, as God is absolutely perfect. And so all that to say this, throughout the Old Testament, not one person ever, 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 not one person, not Moses, who is so great, not Abraham, not Joshua, not David, not Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, nobody has ever been declared righteous. Nobody has ever gone to heaven. Nobody has ever entered a proper relationship with God, which secured their eternal life and gave them a healthy relationship with God by observing the moral law. Why? Because nobody has ever done it. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us, you've murdered. Jesus just made that very clear in Matthew 5. You've committed adultery. Jesus just made that very clear in Matthew chapter 5. We've all done that many times over and over and many other things. In fact, we read in the book of James, you want to try to get to heaven on your own good works? You want to try to get to heaven by observing the law? If you're guilty in just one place of breaking the law, then you're guilty of the entire law. He says, in fact, you go to church, you go to the assembly, the, uh, the, uh, J James writes, and he says, somebody comes in, a sharp, you know, couple, and you, take, you invite them to lunch afterwards, and somebody else comes in, and they smell like the streets, and you kind of avoid them. You've just committed the sin of favoritism, of partiality, and if you've broken one area of the law, you're guilty of the whole thing, and you're not only a bigot, but you're a murderer, and an adulterer, and an idolater. Nobody has ever been declared righteous or been heaven-bound by upholding the law because we read in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that begs the question, why was the law given? And we read in many places in the New Testament exactly why the law was given, but it wasn't given to impart eternal life. It wasn't given to impart the righteousness of God. It wasn't designed to do so. The law was given as boundaries for God's people until the Messiah was born. Kind of like, have you ever gone to a child's birthday party and they put the bumpers up in the bowling lanes? And so the bowling ball, it's, you know, it's going to go right and left, but it doesn't just entirely gutter. In the same way, that's what the law was. It provided bumpers, it provided boundaries for God's people so that they wouldn't gutter and just be totally wiped out like Sodom and Gomorrah and many other pagan nations or the fall of man that resulted in the flood. Secondly, the law made us aware of our sin and drove us to our Savior. The law made us aware of our sin and drove us to our Savior. 
especially when Jesus pulled back the veil of the moral law to allow us to see it more fully, the heart of God, the character of God, the perfection of God, the holiness of God, and nobody has been able, able to touch that. In fact, when the best of the best of the best of the best of men who'd ever walked through the corridors of history, his name was Isaiah, and when he saw the holy God high and lifted up, he didn't say, wow, God, he said, woe is me, for I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I am undone, and I am ruined. That's the best of the best in the presence of the holy God. And it makes us aware of our sin and drives us to our need of a Savior. And then steps onto the scene, Jesus Christ, who pays for our sins on the cross and forgives us of our sins when we trust in Him and clothes us with the garments of righteousness. And then we read in Romans 3, 21 through 22, now, through faith in Jesus, not through works of the law, but through faith in Jesus and apart from the law, we receive forgiveness of sins and the very righteousness of God. So Jesus is our salvation. And then finally, we read that Jesus is our rest. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 through 19, in terms of Jesus being our rest, we enter into the rest of God first. And let me ask you this, Christian. This is written to Christians here, entering into the rest of God. The parallel, the pictures, the foreshadowings of the reality, the type of, the real deal. In the Old Testament of Christians was, was the children of Israel being led through uh, the parting of the Red Sea by the blood of the Lamb, and they entered into the wilderness. And that's a picture of Christians entering into faith in Christ. We are followers of Jesus Christ. Now we are pilgrims here. We are entering into the wilderness. Yet the children of Israel, though delivered from Egypt, just like many Christians today, though delivered from sin and death and fear and bondage don't enter in to the rest of God as the children of Israel never entered into the Canaan land and their promised land. Instead, they perished in the wilderness. They failed to enter the rest of God, R-E-S-T, the rest, his peace, his rest. As many Christians today, many followers of Jesus Christ by the blood of Christ who were delivered from sin and death have entered into the wilderness, but they failed to enter into his rest for these reasons. First, we are to enter his rest by remembering his faithfulness in our lives, his goodness. And many fail to enter the rest of God because they fail to remember how utterly good God has been to us. Verse 7 through 11. So as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness. Where your ancestors tested and tried me. Through 40 years, watch this, 40 years they saw what I did. 40 years they saw what I did. For 40 years they saw how I delivered them from Egypt through the ten plagues. How I parted the Red Seas and then subdued their enemies in the Red Sea behind them. How I led them by the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire by day and night. How I fed them by heavenly manna. How I fed them by drink, by water that gushed through the rock. For 40 years, I blessed them. I subdued any army that came against them. I subdued them. And they forgot it. They forgot and when they came to the, to the promised land, they didn't enter it. They said that we can't take such a great people. They completely forgot about God. They for, completely forgot about God, how God was so good, how God was so faithful, how God was so loving and nurturing and powerful on their behalf. And he said, that's why I was angry with that generation. 
And I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they've not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger, they will never enter my rest. And that generation died in the wilderness, except for Caleb and Joshua. And everybody 20 years old and younger finally inherited the promised land. So just let me ask you this. Are you experiencing the peace of God, the rest of God, the joy of God in your life today? And if not, another question. Are you basking in the remembrance of what he's done for you? Are you basking in the remembrance of his faithfulness to you? One, just remember how he died on the cross for your sins. He rose from the grave three days later. Remember that your sins are forgiven. Remember that you are the very righteousness of God. You are holy in his sight. You're not the spiritual pauper and spiritual rags. You are dressed in the righteousness of God. You're a prince. You're a princess invited to boldly make your requests known. And it utterly overjoys the heart of God. Remember how he's carried you. Remember how he's seen you through month after month. Remember when everybody walked out, how he was faithful. Remember how you knew, had no idea how ends were going to meet, and he always came through. Remember when you were going through that grief, and yet there was peace that you couldn't explain over and over and over. Remember the pain that he healed you from and restored you of. Remember God's faithfulness. And don't think for a second that he brought you this far to leave you hanging. He brought you this far to bring you all the way. He brought you this far to continue displaying his faithfulness, his glory, his grace in your life. Enter his rest by not forgetting his faithfulness. Yeah, let's praise him. And then we also enter his rest by believing his promises. Verse 14. We've come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold on to our original conviction, our conviction. We have to be convicted in what God has promised us. And we hold on to it firmly until the very end. We hold on to these promises. And then again in verse 19. So then we see that they, the Israelites, were not able to enter into their rest, into the promised land, because of their unbelief. There's countless promises in this word to you. And the Bible says every one of them are yes and amen. God didn't, he didn't display, he didn't write about how he displayed his glory and his peace and his power and his love in people's lives as history lessons for us to say how interesting. He did it as object lessons to say how inspiring. Because that's not simply how God related with people then. That is how God wants to relate with us now. And there's hundreds of promises, and the Bible says every one of them are yes and amen. Are you standing on a promise? Did you know that the first century symbol for Christianity was not the cross? The first century symbol from Christianity, it's on some of the stained glass windows around here, but it was the anchor. It was taken from a letter that Peter wrote, that Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ is an anchor to our souls. So storms are going to come and storms are going to go. Now, depending upon whether or not we stand firm depends upon whether or not we hold on to the anchor of Christ by believing his promises. And if there's any season in your life that you're not standing upon some promise from God's word to you, in this juncture, spoken personally to you by the Holy Spirit, made alive at this juncture, a Ramah word of God for you, for now, at this juncture, if at any season in your life you're not standing on a promise from God's word, birthed through seeking Him in personal time with Him, then you're standing on a shaky, shaky foundation. 
We enter into his rest on a daily basis by believing the promises, and every promise is yes and amen. And I don't care how long you've been holding on to that promise. Maybe it's 25 years like Abraham, maybe more. I don't care how long you've been holding on to the promise. Hold on to it. And God is setting things up perfectly to exceed your expectations so that your praise will be he truly is able to do immeasurably more than anything I could dare to ask or imagine. And then finally, we enter into his rest by surrendering. Verse 15 through 18, as, just, as has just been said, verse 15, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as you did the rebellion when in the wilderness they chose to forget his faithfulness, when in the wilderness they chose not to believe the promise, and when in the wilderness they chose to disobey him. Don't harden your hearts like that. Somebody asked me once after it came out in the news about this preacher. He'd been preaching, I forget, you know, 40 years or something like this. And, you know, he led many people to Christ. And then all of a sudden he came out and he decided that he didn't believe there was a God. And somebody said, how could that happen? And I said, it's easy. It's easy. You just disobey God and continue to disobey God and neglect the word of God. And then all of a sudden, your heart isn't going to be tender and filled with faith and affection toward Jesus Christ. It's going to be callous and doubting and unbelieving. It's exactly what happened to the Israelites in the wilderness. They stacked one act of disobedience on top of another, failing to remember God's goodness, failing to embrace His promises, and their hearts became increasingly callous to the point they didn't even believe in Yahweh, I am God at all. And so much so that instead of marching forward into the God who proved his faithfulness over and over and over, they would have rather gone back into Egypt where the Egyptians took every firstborn son and killed him. They would have rather gone back into that bondage instead of press forward because their hearts had grown so callous because of unbelief, because of rebellion, because of a lack of remembrance. And because of, of a lack of diligence of clinging to the promises of God. So when I hear of some pastor that lost his faith and doesn't even believe there's a God, it's not because of tragedy. Believe me that. You grow closer to God in tragedy. You talk about God on the mountaintop all day long, but you talk to God in the valley. And it's through the valley that you're talking to God that you know God intimately. The testimonies are born. It's not because of some tragedy. No, 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 no. That, that deepens our intimacy with Christ. That deepens our relationship with God. If somebody who was a believer and follower of Jesus Christ loses their faith, it's because of consistent disobedience, day after day after day, consistent refusal to remember and reflect on and relish in the goodness and faithfulness of God in their life, and of neglect of the Word of God, because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. I wonder, I really felt that connecting just now. I wonder if some of you are on the verge of losing your faith. I wonder if your heart is growing increasingly callous. If so, then there's some sin in your life that you need to repent of. 
And you need to pray, oh, Holy Spirit, give me a new heart so that I don't even want to go back to that sin. I'm not only confessing I agree it's wrong, confessing is being in agreement. I'm, 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 I'm in agreement that this sin is wrong. But even beyond that, I'm asking for your Holy Spirit to give me a new heart, to, to, to see that sin the way you see it, and to loathe it, and to fear it, and to run from it. Lord, I don't want that. Perhaps you need to repent this morning. You know your heart is growing increasingly callous. And perhaps you've just forgotten about how good, how gracious God is. And you've taken the blessings that, that he's given you, and you're just throwing them by the wayside. You've been so careless with them, and those blessings are so priceless, and they're so precious. Perhaps you need to repent, and you need to remember how good God is to you right now. And you need to recommit to the word of God every day, because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Would you stand with me, please? So with your heads bowed, Hebrews 3, that's a powerful book. Jesus is greater than. Jesus told the rich young ruler, follow me and I'll, uh, uh, follow me, sell your possessions and goods. Give everything you have to the poor and come and follow me. And you know what? The, the, the rich young ruler, he walked away sad because he had great wealth. No, Jesus was so much greater than that wealth. Jesus was so much greater than the world that he went back to. Some people think that we may have never heard of the name of the Apostle Paul if the rich young ruler would have been obedient and gave everything he had away and followed Jesus. Jesus is so much greater than the world. And I wonder if you're returning to the world instead of Christ. I wonder if you've returned to the world. I wonder, are, are you one of the ones that, I, I, that could connect with that and, and your heart has grown callous and your faith has grown cold and you've stopped reflecting on his goodness and there's some areas in your life that you need to repent and you need to recommit to the word of God every day with your heads bowed I would like to pray for you if that's you raise your hand high I would just like to pray for you okay praise God praise God and perhaps you're trying to get to heaven through the law by doing things remember uh, Moses Elijah Joshua uh, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, none of them, none of them, Isaiah, none of them have ever been heaven-bound because of the law. All the law does is show us how short we've fallen. Do you get that? All the law does is show us how short we've fallen and drive us to our need of a Savior, Jesus Christ, who paid for our sins on the cross. Jesus is greater than Moses, and the covenant that he ushers in, grace over works, is infinitely greater And perhaps you just need to say, you know, I've been, I've been trying to, I, I haven't known what to call it, but I've been trying to work to be right with God. I've been trying to work my way into heaven. I've been trying to do enough good in order to maybe get into heaven or to get God to be pleased with me. And, and so you just need to trust in Christ right now. You need to open up your heart and trust in Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. So would you bow your heads with your heads bowed? I would just like to pray for you and pray this in an audible voice. God, I know that I've sinned. I can feel the separation in my heart. But I ask you to come into my heart, Jesus, and cleanse me of my sins. I can't earn this. I can't buy it. You're too holy. I'm too sinful. You're alive, and I'm dead in my sins. A dead man can't work. I, I can't earn this. I can't achieve it. But I believe that you died for me to bring me back from the dead. 
to forgive my sins so that I can be born again. Jesus, come into my heart and forgive me and save me. And now with your, with your heads bowed, if you've prayed to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning, just indicate that on a Connect card or tell me about it because the next step is following Jesus in baptism. And this is how you begin growing in your new life in Christ. Did you guys hear that? It's important that you follow Jesus in baptism. It's how you begin growing. And as we're obedient to Christ, we enter into his rest. Did you hear that? As we're obedient to Christ, we enter into his rest. If you're disobedient to Christ, if there's an area of disobedience, you will never, ever, 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 ever find rest. It's why your heart is so thirsty. It's why your heart is so dry. It's why you have anxiety. It's why you don't have peace. It's why you keep running to escapist sins on Friday night or, uh, sadly enough, maybe Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night. You keep running into escapist sins. It's because your heart doesn't have rest. You will never experience the rest of Christ until you have obedience, until you begin surrendering and reflecting upon His goodness in your life. And if you're one of these the, the, on the verge of being a statistic, where your faith is growing increasingly callous, your love is growing increasingly cold to everything you are called to love more than life itself. Repent. Repent of those areas that you are been, you've been stubborn and disobedient. Repent in those areas that like a fool, like a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool has been returning to its folly. Repent. But you can't repent on your own. You have to ask the Holy Spirit to give you strength to walk in righteousness. You have to to ask the Holy Spirit to give you a fresh set of desires, a new heart. And you have to recommit to the Word of God every day because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So in response, if you've raised your hand or if you have any other need that you have a prayer for, I want to ask you to right now come down to the altar and repent. Who cares what people think? Let's get right with God. Let's, I don't care. Maybe you came in here beat down a little bit, but let's leave men and women of God. Maybe you came in here uh, with, with a double standard, but let's leave with integrity. Maybe you came in here, people saying all kinds of stuff about you, but let's leave. Who cares what anybody says about me? Because I'm right with God. Let's leave here with a proper relationship with God. And so let's just respond.